It went three, two, one, zero, zero, zero. <laughs> I thought it was glitching out. But we're good. We're good. Okay. Allegedly, we're good. Oh, let me turn my phone on silent. I mean, you never really know with us, though. (laughs) No. It's been better since Zancaster's updated, though. Yeah, I think we've we've figured out a flow after a year and a half. (laughs) Almost two years of podcasting. Two years? (laughs) (laughs) We figured out our flow. Finally. Okay, so I probably know this case. Well, you might be familiar with it, yeah, a okay. little bit. You're not going to know details, but... Oh, hi, by the way, before hi. we start, because <laughs> we're about to just start. We're about to dive right into this story. We are ready to go. But I want to greet everybody and say thank you for joining us today on The Darker Side of Life. Thank you. I am Dana. I'm Kristen. And this is the podcast where two best friends tell each other creepy, strange, weird, unexplained, mysterious, and bizarre stories, but we don't tell each other what we're going to talk about. I want to know what you're going to talk about. Okay. I will tell you what I'm going to talk about. I'll get right into it. Okay. Or you've probably heard a saying that every dead body on Mount Everest was once a highly motivated individual. I haven't, but now I have. Really? You haven't? <laughs> no. Well, there's a saying, and it says that every dead person on Mount Everest was once a highly motivated <laughs> individual. Okay, now I've heard it twice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it is very thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm going to talk about some of those people that have died on Mount Everest. Okay. I had a theory of what you were going to talk about, and that was not it. Oh, really? Yes. What What was your theory? So, I knew you said you knew this case very well. Uh-huh. And I was just watching a documentary on Jody Arias. And oh, I was okay. like, I know she knows this case. Could she be doing it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not too sure. And I'm like, I am going to flip out if she tells me she's done Jody Arias <laughs> as I'm sitting here watching a documentary. So, no, I was totally wrong. <laughs> but good. I'm kind of glad you're not because I'm like, I just watched a documentary about it. You're like, crap. I, like this, is, It would have been Jody <laughs> overload for you. <laughs> yes Jody is overload anyway so she's extra she is the God. definition of extra but cool I don't know a lot about Everest obviously so okay did you know it's the hottest mountain in the world well yes I know that <laughs> <laughs> okay. not that dumb <laughs> so I don't want this story to be just kind of a simple list of all the dead people that died on Mount Everest because there's a lot of podcasts that cover like sort of the little snippets of a lot more climbers that I'm going to cover. And mm-hmm. you can kind of find a lot of lists online if that's the sort of thing you're looking for. I'm not going to post up any pictures either of any of the climbers that have died. I mean, you can also find that on Google if you're so inclined to go looking for it. But feel free yeah. to do that amongst yourselves if you want. Yes. But what I do want to talk about is a couple of the most famous climbers who have died on Mount Everest. And I want to talk about some of the problems, the underlying problems that probably led to a lot of their deaths and how it affects climbers still living today and still try to go up the mountain. And basically how climbing the world's highest mountain is so controversial today. Mm -hmm. The amount of problems and issues that plague climbers on Mount Everest might surprise you. And this is a place where the smallest detail can mean the difference between life and death. And it's not just, you know, people throwing their trash around or not helping somebody that needs help or health mm-hmm. issues from climbing the mountain. There's so many little problems. And my sources. 
This is going to be a long list. <laughs> I knew as soon as you said it, I was like, she's got a lot. <laughs> Several YouTube videos, thanks to climbers nowadays putting GoPros on their helmets yes. and taking us to the summit. I will watch those videos all day long. Um, there's what it's like to queue on Everest by the BBC. There's Climber Describes the Scene in the Everest Death Zone by CBS This Morning. Finding George Mallory, a YouTube video on it, one by Real Life Lore. There's an article by Explorers Web that I read about um, a certain man in oxygen tanks, um, an article from the BBC about a climber, an article from Business Insider about tourism in Nepal, um, articles from Outside Online, um, another one from Explorers Web, and four books. I have <laughs> I have Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. I have The Climb by Anatoly Borkreef. If you read Into Thin Air, read The Climb. There pretty much should be like books that you read back to back. Dark Summit by Nick Heal and High Crimes, The Fate of Everest in the Age of Greed by Michael Cotis, not to be confused with High Crimes and Misdemeanors, the book about Bill Clinton. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the books. Um, to be fair... I have read two of these books before and I just kind of reread them for fun. And the other two books I just kind of read for fun. And I just like bookmarked little passages where I thought I might want to bring something up. I don't know how you read books for podcasts. I can never do it. Like I can never, I can't ever do it. I can't even. I thought you were going to say, I don't know how you read books for fun. No, <laughs> I always read books. for. Fun. I have a stack of books like, that I need to minute. read right now. I just can't like find the time to sit and do it. But no, I have a stack of books. Actually, my mic is sitting on two books right now. One oh, really? about Obama and one about uh, the Irish history and revolution. What's it called? Uh, Novel of Ireland's Struggle for Freedom. Yes. Hmm. My parents gave it You know, it to it's me. weird because like. <laughs> We'll have like books like that that make us sound so like educated and, and posh. And then I have like Christopher Pike, The Last Vampire series yes. from middle school on my shelf that I still break out and read every now and then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My book collection is very diverse. Broad. It's diverse. <laughs> it's very broad. I have something for everyone. Yeah. It's diverse. It's okay. Okay. Where was I? sorry i don't have my glasses on so what i have to do is i have to up my font to like my grandma font, font? <laughs> yes <laughs> i'm so sad okay this is better most people i'm sure have heard about mount everest it's the highest mountain in the world it's 8848 meters or 29,031 feet to give you a perspective of it that's about how high a lot of commercial airplanes fly hi Five and a half miles above sea level. Pretty high mountain. Because it's so high, you can't just hike up and back down. Because you'll die. Yes. You have to acclimatize your body slowly. And we've touched on altitude sickness before in the Bar Baratia incident in Diala Pass, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is a lot more extreme. Yeah, much higher mountains. One of the first symptoms a person's going to feel is a struggle to breathe. The air is a lot thinner up there, so you need to take in more breaths in order to get your lungs full of oxygen molecules, and you'll start to find yourself breathing faster. You'll need to get more and more oxygen in your system in a place where oxygen is spread out a lot thinner. So your heart's going to start to beat faster to try to keep that oxygen flowing through your blood and muscles, and your body's going to produce more red blood cells, which carries oxygen, and this makes your blood thicker, though. So your heart has to work harder because your blood is, like, really thick, kind of like sludgy. Mm -hmm. which can lead to heart attack and strokes. So you've got to be in pretty good shape 
to obviously to be able to do something like that. Oh, yes. You'll urinate more often. So if you don't drink enough, you can get dehydrated. Mm -hmm. And high altitude can also be an appetite suppressant. So you need to eat often to replenish your energy that you're burning off just by being awake. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, your body is like working super hard. You hear about climbers just having to force down like a Snickers bar or like bag of Pringles or something. Something high calorie. They need high calorie foods up there. And you won't be able to sleep well because your brain might keep waking you up, reminding you to breathe. Oh, or to breathe better. That's terrifying. <laughs> Nausea is common. Migraines are common. John Krakauer Hey-o. got a bad migraine on Everest. One thing I I'm like, you. hey, I got that. <laughs> I know how to deal with that one. We will come to you in base camp with our kit. <laughs> I have my teas. I have my mint sticks. I have my pills if you really need it. Yes. <laughs> my As ice pack. We are we are good for some migraines. We will treat yes, them. We are. <laughs> Most common... Um, some most common ailments are high altitude cerebral edema and high altitude pul- high altitude pulmonary edema. We talked about that a little bit in the Baratia incident episode. Um, high altitude cerebral edema happens when the brain swells with fluid, mm-hmm. and according to Wikipedia, it involves disorientation, lethargy, nausea, and other symptoms occurs when a person fails to properly acclimatize to high altitudes. You might get disoriented and confused and drowsy. You'd be really slow to perform basic functions. In Into Thin Air, John Krakauer talks about a man who came down with high-altitude cerebral edema, and he described it as, like, feeling drunk. The guy Mm. kept falling over. I mean, he survived, obviously. Um, He kept falling over. He had trouble getting dressed. He would put his harness and his safety gear on wrong, and people had to take him back to base camp to get medical help because he just wasn't, he just didn't have it with him together this sounds terrible (laughs) it sounds awful (laughs) it sounds awful to have it but it sounds awful what if you are high up and it's just you and somebody else and that somebody else is behaving like your drunk friend that you're trying to walk home (laughs) what if you both get it yeah exactly oh god high altitude pulmonary edema it occurs with an excess buildup of fluid in your lungs at high altitude typically this um, happens above 8,000 meters. It's the area which is called the death zone on Everest. Once your body enters the death zone, it will literally start to slowly die. Oh my God. So the goal for climbers is to get to the summit and back ASAP without something happening. Like you don't have time to stop and rest. You can't spend the night in a death zone or anything like that. The longer you stay, the worse off you're going to be. It's like you can't even enjoy your time climbing this gigantic mountain. It's like, I have to go or I am dead. You ever think some like higher powers looking down be like, stupid humans. Like, <laughs> I made this so you couldn't do this and you're doing it anyway. <laughs> you're almost guaranteed to have high altitude pulmonary edema if you don't properly acclimatize your body. And even some people that do do it properly still sometimes come down with this. Mm-hmm. That's why when climbers attempt to summit Mount Everest, it takes about a month to do so. A month? About a month. Yeah. Climbing season takes weeks. They have to start at base camp. They go up a little ways and then back down to base camp. And then they go up a little further and then back down. And then they rest a day or two. And then they might go up to another camp. And they come back down to a little higher camp and then stay the night. And then go back up and then back down to base camp. They basically just keep inching themselves up the mountain like mm-hmm. little by little. It reminds me of divers. 
needing yes. to come up yeah. slowly or they'll get the bends. Yeah. So it's like you have to come up a little and then you have to stop and then you yeah. have to come up a little bit more and stop. Just the opposite. This is just the opposite way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're still going up. You're still I guess. going up, but <laughs> this is like one you're like below sea level, like you're way down in the sea, and this you're on a mountain. The British were among the first to try and summit Mount Everest and have been on expeditions since the 20s or so to do it. In 1924, George Mallory and Andrew Irvine were attempting to make the summit. Now, this is 1924. They didn't have any Gore-Tec or North Face coats or fancy GPS equipment or anything. They had some, like, wool coats and a few ice axes and equipment that people might seem kind of primitive today compared to all of our half-angle technology. But they made a go for it. On June 8th, the two were seen climbing the ridge in the distance. They disappeared into the clouds, and they were never seen again. On May 29th, 1953, Edmund Hillary... today. Is it really? That's May 29th. No shit. <laughs> like that's today. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. I'm not going to do the math because I don't know 2021 <laughs> from 1953, but today in 1953, <laughs> Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first known people to summit Mount Everest. That's so cool. I love that we're doing this today. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. I've heard news of his summit was withheld purposely for a few days. And also I've heard that the news was rushed to England as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't know which is true, but either way, the news did reach England on the same day as Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. Oh, wow. So I thought that was just kind of cool. That's cool. So I don't know. I've heard that they held off on it so they Mm -hmm. could like release it at the same time. But then I also heard that they kind of wanted to make it either before or after, so not to take the spotlight off of it. Yeah, I would have thought they would have done it either before or after because her coronation was kind of a big deal. Big deal. I mean, yeah. it was it was on TV and everything. Some people think summoning Everest isn't as impressive a feat as it used to be because now we combat all the health issues I just talked about with bottles of oxygen and certain adrenaline drugs and, and whatnot to kind of help you along the way. And plus, we just have better technology and equipment. But with all this new technology and access also brings more climbers. I would think that it's going to make more people, like normal people like me and you, think like, oh, I can do that. No big deal. I'll just get all my high-tech fancy stuff. And like, I would have no business trying to climb Mount Everest. You are exactly right. Thank you. That is one of the big problems I'm going to talk about later is climbers with inexperience. And this is when I'm going to email you a picture. Now, I'm sure you remember that famous photo from 2019 of that's the line to get to the summit of Mount Everest. Holy hell. Yeah, that just doesn't like that doesn't seem special. It makes it seem not special to me. And I'm not saying like it's not special because it takes a person to be able to do that. But I'm like, I don't want to have to sit and wait in line to climb a mountain. Do you know what I'm saying? It just makes it seem like. All right, everyone's doing it. This is like a line at Disney World. Yes, I was thinking of an amusement park, like to stand in line for a new roller coaster. Or at an airport security line, except it's to the top of Mount Everest. Yes. That line is not easy to cross. You cannot pass people easily. So you just kind of have to like trudge along with everybody else? Sort of, yeah. In um, YouTube videos, they have climbers trying to get around people, and it's not easy. People are clipped onto a rope. Mm-hmm. 
And some people are clipped in with more than one line for safety in case one breaks or something. Mm -hmm. So if you want to pass somebody, you have to unclip one of your ropes, clip around the other climber, unclip your second rope, clip around the other climber. They have to do the same to get around you. Yeah. And also you have to kind of maneuver around each other. Mm -hmm. And on the side of a mountain. Look at some of those ridges, though. It's like if you make a pyramid with your hands, Mm -hmm. they're on the top of it. One wrong step at the wrong time will send you sliding off the edge and you are no more. And plus you're you're all bulked out like big gear, like astronauts. Like you have all these big bulky climbing suits on. Yeah. And I had a question. Are you required to wear certain colors? Because everyone's in like blue, yellow, or red. No. At least I don't think so. Expeditions may have you Mm -hmm. wear certain colors, but that's actually something I wanted to talk about toward the end. Okay. So keep that in mind. Okay. Just I noticed it was it was primary colors. <laughs> You're very perceptive that you pick up on a lot of this stuff <laughs> early on. Thank you. That's actually a nice compliment. <laughs> this year in twenty well, plus we're also the same people the same person. So yes, we are. That's true. You're I'm just, just thinking your vibes. I'm, I'm in your head. It's it's fine. <laughs> we're used to it. This year in twenty twenty one, Nepal has issued a record number of three hundred and ninety four permits so far to climb Mount Everest. The previous record was 381 in 2019 when that viral photo was taken that I just Mm -hmm. showed you. In 2020, the mountain was closed for climbing because of the coronavirus pandemic. And a permit isn't assigned to just one person. It can be assigned to a group with multiple people listed on it. Oh, okay. So you just have that many permits, but it could be a certain number within the permit. Like you could issue a permit for a certain expedition to take 10 people up. Okay. Is there a limit to how many people can be in a group? No, not that I oh, know God. of, unless the expeditions themselves put their own limits on there. Wow. Okay. That's another problem. That's because you could have one permit issued for 50 people. Mm-hmm. And by far the most problematic thing on Everest are inexperienced climbers. Mm-hmm. They can be deadly on Everest, not just for themselves, but for other people. They can use somebody else's ropes, equipment, oxygen if they need it. If they get in trouble and they need a doctor, doctors from other expeditions take time out from their own to provide care. Mm-hmm. Sherpas who are hired by others sometimes have to go help out strangers that are not part of their expeditions. And I mean, they're not getting paid to help these people out, but they do. Mm-hmm. And it it strains resources in an already strained environment. Yeah. In the BBC video on YouTube by um, in the BBC video on YouTube, one climber named Joe Bradshaw describes being in the line while climbing, and one person was way ahead of them and sort of kind of ran out of gas, and they stopped for a few minutes to take a break. So everybody behind them had to stop too. She said Come it was on, like being in a traffic jam on a busy highway. So they're just <laughs> all sitting there waiting for the leader to go on. In that same video, Tim Misdale, he's an expedition leader. He had six summits total. He's very experienced. He said, in the past, people would see a video or read an article about Mount Everest, and that might kick off like a 15 or 20-year passion of climbing that Mm -hmm. leads to people climbing Mount Everest. Nowadays, somebody might see a story or video, and they try to do it in a few months. Yeah. Hey, you want to climb Everest? It's like Joey and Chandler on Friends. That time they decided they wanted to climb Mount Everest. Yes. <laughs> Instead, they watched a documentary about it. <laughs> that would be my style. It's like because we are such an instant gratification type of society yeah. that it's like, I want to do it and I want to do it now. Not realizing, oh, you actually have to train to do this. Oh, yeah. 
Tim said in the video that most climbers are on the same side of the rope and the person in front is basically the leader. So -hmm. if they stop to rest, like that one climber did for Joe, you know, if you just step to the other side of the rope and let others pass, then that would be great. But they don't do that because a lot of them are inexperienced and they don't know the kind of mountain etiquette or have the kind of awareness to let other people by you that are going Mm -hmm. faster. So for other climbers, they might find themselves waiting in that line for hours and their fingers and toes are getting cold and they're risking frostbite. They're getting tired too. If you're in a death zone, the clock is ticking and people might run out of oxygen because they're not moving and they're sitting still for hours. That's when you start like honking your quote horn at people to be like keep going can you imagine if climbers took air horns on mount everest it would be a human traffic jam it literally would be oh my god honk 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 and there's going to be that one person with the horn that sounds like the general lee yes um i've heard one that sounds like a train before it's terrifying and then the one that sounds pitiful beep beep that's mine the one that mine would sound like the roadrunner from the coyote cartoons i would not be taken seriously at all <laughs> they'd be like oh that's cute <laughs> in this video tim showed a photo of a climber he was behind on the climb once and he pointed out all of the things that experienced climbers might see that is very dangerous to you mm-hmm. his crampons were on the wrong feet and crampons are kind of like spikes that you kind of put over your shoes did you ever have the plastic roller skates when you were a kid that you just like unclamped and clamped on top of your shoe oh yeah you just strapped them on yeah yes. they're kind of like that but they're metal and they have spikes sticking out everywhere so picture it those on your reminds boots. me of um my parents had bought some last winter called yak tracks oh yeah they're they're small but yeah you like put them on your shoes so you can walk out in the snow and ice yeah. I remember they bought some for my sister when she first got pregnant because it was winter so you're like you oh, need these smart. yak tracks yeah yeah um, he, he, his were on the wrong feet and hmm. his quick draws on his harness add unnecessary weight and clutter, which you want to be as light as possible in the death zone because you want to mm-hmm. get up there and back. Carrying excess weight is a bad move. Right. This is why when most climbers, um, make their summit attempt, they'll use part of a bottle of oxygen on the way up. Then they stop at this one little spot and they stash another bottle and they'll get a fresh bottle. They'll go up to the summit and then come back and then pick up the bottle that they stashed to use back on the way back down. So they don't have to carry a lot of weight, but they Mm -hmm. have a full bottle with them all the time. Right. Um, The guy's helmet was on the back of his backpack. It wasn't on his head, which is a huge mistake. Pointless. (laughs) Somebody can kick a rock off the top of Mount Everest and it will come down and hit you in the head and kill people. It's happened before. People have written so many books about it and talked about how climbers they were with just suddenly just fall off because somebody kicked a rock down and it hit them in the head and killed them. That's terrible. Yes. So that's dangerous. And his backpack was open and things were spilling out. I mean, that's such just like common sense. Like even if you're just a regular hiker, you don't do stuff like that. All that took was for, you know, a falling rock to hit him or something to fall out of his backpack. And, you know, maybe somebody was like, hey, buddy, you lost this. Or maybe if there was nobody around him, he wouldn't have even known that he lost something that he needed. Mm -hmm. Maybe an extra pair of gloves or an oxygen bottle or something. And then he gets to the top and he's like, oh, shit, where's my gloves? And then before that, you've lost your fingers to frostbite. Yeah. Or you can't breathe anymore. 
Joe Bradshaw said in that video that no matter what your experience is, the most experienced thing that you can do on Mount Everest is know when to turn back. Even if you're Hmm. right there on the summit, if you can see it, if you're a few feet from it, if you have to turn around knowing when to do so, that's the most important thing you can do. I would imagine that'd be so hard, though. In the CBS video, there's a climber named Ed Doring. He was climbing in 2019. That's the year of the big viral photo. And he said he was on the summit, which, by the way, is about the size of two ping pong tables put together. Oh, gosh. I know. It doesn't look very big at all. And he said there was an unruly group of people who were kind of being rude and pushing others aside and out of the way so they could take their selfies. Oh, God. Um, he was really nervous, so he just kind of sat down. No. <laughs> he took his picture. Like, He's like, you're not push- you are not pushing me <laughs> off this mountain. He's like a little turtle. Like, just going to go into myself. He said so many people were not prepared and did not know what they were getting into. And he said he was unprepared to see so many dead bodies mm-hmm. still clipped to the rope. Like, they had died that year, and they're still clipped to the rope, but they're just kind of, like, hanging off it. And you have to go around them as you're climbing. Oh, God. Could they not unclip them? Some people might. Some people might not. I mean, I, I know it's like a respect yeah. thing. but I imagine if you're in a death zone, you're probably going to leave them alone. Yeah. Um, or yeah, it may a- be up to the expedition leader to figure out. If somebody dies on your expedition, then it's like, okay, well, I need to figure out, can we retrieve them or not? A lot of bodies you cannot yet. And I'll explain that to you later <laughs> about why you cannot recover many people that died on Everest. In 2019, 11 people died, two from falls, and the rest were from altitude sickness or exhaustion. Um, All were on descent, where 80% of fatalities occur on the descent, coming back down from Mount Everest. Hmm. I would have thought it would be the opposite. Really? Mm -hmm. Going up. To me, it makes sense because you're tired, obviously, and your balance may be off, your footholds can be slippery and fragile, and sometimes walking down is harder than walking up. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're looking down off the mountain, you might get kind of a little vertigo and just kind of get a little wobbly. (laughs) Yeah, I would wonder, too, like if you're going too fast because it's like, okay, I've done it. I want to get down the mountain. I'm done. Uh, Some people might. And you go too fast and you're not paying attention to what your body is saying to you. So like I said before on Everest, there's no room for error and the slightest mistake could get you killed. And at high altitudes, you're not going to be thinking straight away. Um, and into thin air, John Crackhower talks about he was at the top of the Hillary step, which is kind of the last obstacle to get to the summit on the south route. And he was waiting on others to come up before he could go down. Well, his oxygen's running out. So he's kind of sitting there, like, kind of nervous, tapping his foot, like, come on, guys, <laughs> try not to die here. Another climber come up and he asked him, like, hey, buddy, would you, like, turn around and, like, turn my oxygen down so I can conserve it a little bit and it lasts a little longer? And the guy was like, sure, buddy. So he turns it or whatever and a minute or so later he realizes the climber turned his oxygen all the way up i was gonna say oh no this is bad this is bad that was an oh shit moment like how did he not just like i don't know can can you sled down mount everest or something to get down faster i don't know (laughs) i just can't imagine the fear that he would have felt when he realized like oh shit my oxygen is leaking out. This is like an Apollo 13 moment. Yeah. So what do you do? <laughs> like, like, oh, crap. You, what, what does he do? Get down fast. I think he, he was able to get down and like turn it back down. And mm-hmm. then eventually he got down. Obviously he survives because he writes a book about it. 
Also, that book Into Thin Air is what the movie Everest was based on, with Jake Gyllenhaal and Josh Brolin in it. <gasps> Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> My man. <laughs> My Jake Gyllenhaal. I am the Prince of Persia. But even professional climbers who may have climbed Everest as easily as if they're walking the dog can mm-hmm. face issues. And among those is something that surprised me. Theft. Petty theft is a huge problem. Not the time, guys. <laughs> Most things that can be stolen, though, are deadly to people. Yeah, some people like carry cash with them because they want to tip the Sherpas and they can carry mm-hmm. thousands of dollars with them so people steal money. But clothing and gear will get stolen. Equipment, you know, ice axes and, and whatnot. Food, first aid supplies. Oxygen bottles are worth money if you resell them. So some people will raise your tent, get all your oxygen bottles and sell them for, I don't know, three to nine hundred dollars depending on the bottle see you are essentially killing somebody yes like if that person ends up dead then that's on you you know it's kind of funny that you say that because i'm (laughs) going to tell a story about a polish climber in 2005 he returned from his from the summit to find that his tent had been raided this is the first tent you're going to get to and you're exhausted you need to stop and sleep Mm -hmm. his clothing and sleeping bag had been stolen So he wasn't terribly worried because he had planned to hike down to the second camp anyway that day. Most people stop at that first camp and sleep and recover a little bit. Mm -hmm. So he went on down to the second camp. When he got there, more of his stuff was stolen. Uh Uh-oh. This time it was the stuff he needed. It was his headlamp and extra Mm -hmm. clothes and dry gloves and all of his, like, dry things. He borrowed a sleeping bag and supplies from other people who let him borrow it. He tried for the summit again. And he made it. Nobody loaned him a headlamp to use. So he was climbing in the dark, like the pitch blackness. That's not smart. He got back down to camp three and his tent was raided a third time. I wonder if somebody was like stalking him. I don't know. They took his medications, clothing, oxygen, food, whatever he had left. He said that if he had been more tired, then they would have found his body in that tent the next season. Oh, my God. He ended up going farther down the mountain that night, too. He said the robbery on the tent was a robbery on his life. Yes. Yes. Because someone is going to die because of what you took. The only thing that saved him was the fact that he was not utterly exhausted and he was Mm -hmm. able to climb back down to a place and that people like loaned him a sleeping bag and things to use. Yeah. Michael Cotis, he's the author who wrote High Crimes. He was on the mountain for an assignment with the Hartford Current newspaper in Connecticut. And he wrote that on his expedition, he caught somebody going through his gear. And he was climbing with his wife, too. She also worked for the paper. And they got to one of their high camps and discovered their tents were gone. Oh, they the weren't whole even tent? set up. Yeah, it wasn't even set up. Like, the guy that said they were going to set up the tents and take care of everything never did it. Never did it. Oh, God. They found their food. Their supplies were missing. People kept stealing their oxygen and more of their food. So they decided not to even try for the summit and just to go back home. Probably like, smart. Done. We're done with this. They were able to stay in another tent, though, um, so they weren't left totally exposed because other climbers took them in. Um, he also wrote about a climber named Nils Antizana. He's Bolivian-American. And there's a lot of international names. I'll try not to mispronounce. He died on the mountain because his guide, who was a man named Gustavo Lisi, he was an Argentinian, left him behind on purpose. He was a guide? Allegedly. I was going to say, I hope he's not still a guide. Nils's trip was plagued with issues from the beginning. There's so many issues. Like, I can't even go into so many problems that a lot of people had. I'm not even going to scratch the surface, but... Gustavo didn't speak English. 
his Sherpas didn't speak Spanish. And Niels spoke both, so he had to translate between his guide and the Sherpas, mm-hmm. which the guide should be the boss. Yes. Not the client. They are the person that's supposed to run the show on the mountain and to be able to keep the climbers and their clients safe. Not the client. The client shouldn't be running the show because the client's the one that pays the guide They're to take them up. They're paying money to take you up. Yes. So Niels collapsed near the summit and Gustavo said he stopped to help him, but he did not. He's blatantly lying. The two Sherpas did stop to help him, but they had to go back down because it was before it became too late and they got trapped up there too. Again, you're in a death zone. Clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. There's only so much you can do before you have to save yourself. Yeah. It's, it's like when you're on an airplane and the oxygen mask come down and the flight attendant tells you, put it on yourself and then help somebody else. Because if right. you try to help somebody else and then you pass out, well, then both of you are going to die. Right. So Gustavo lied about the whole incident, but here's the thing. Gustavo had stolen a camera from a climber on another mountain. He used his summit photos to publish an, in an Argentinian newspaper saying that it was him on top of Everest. And oh. he wound up getting clients that way. Oh. He had never summited Everest before. He's passing off somebody else's accomplishment as his own. So people go to him now to pay to take him on Everest. He's yeah. basically lying to people to use them to get money to be able to go to Everest himself. Mm-hmm. He's a con artist. Yes, how he is a con you, artist. I mean, how do you weed those people's those people out? That's another how problem. Do you know? Because you don't have to have any kind of certifications to be a guide on Everest. I could take you on Everest if you wanted to. I no, could just I, buy I'm the good. permit. The permit's I'm like sixty thousand dollars, so I'm not yeah. going up. But <laughs> well, that decides it for me. No, I'm definitely not going. Sixty thousand yeah, dollars? No it's, thanks. It's, it's expensive to climb Mount Everest. It's really expensive. God. Really expensive. That's just for oh, the permit. And that's for the permit. Um, it depends on the expedition that you get, what it includes. Some of them are all inclusive, where it's like food, supplies, guides, Sherpa support, whatever. Others are bare bones, like we'll get you to base camp, and then you're on your own from there. You know, your supplies you are on your, your own. Your food's on your own. Mm-hmm. If you want to hire a Sherpa, you hire a freelancer. I don't know, <laughs> something. I don't know there's freelance Freelancer. <laughs> But it just depends on what you want to pay for. So Gustavo straight up lied, but climbers have to be aware of other expedition leaders or guides who might cut corners. There's a man named Henry Todd. He was a longtime Everest outfitter. He would refill used oxygen bottles to save money. Now, many expeditions use bottles made from Poisk out of Russia, which is a top of the line supplier of bottled oxygen for Everest expeditions. It's a very reliable and trustworthy brand. Poisk? Poisk. P-O-I-S-K. Is that right? Poisk. I don't know Russian. Sounds good to me. What Henry Todd was doing was using old Poisk bottles from Russia and refilling them, which doesn't sound so bad, right? Sure. Some people think it's like recycling. It's helping to solve the garbage problem on Everest, which is a whole nother issue that I haven't (laughs) even mentioned yet is how much (laughs) trash is on top of Mount Everest. And most people would say this is kind of being nice. It's being good to the environment, right? Mm-hmm. Especially Nepal now charges each climber a fee. That's into it's like four or five thousand dollars. That's only refundable if you bring back a certain weight of garbage back with you. So it's trying to make people not just leave, leave their, their trash. trash up there. Yes. So the an Explorer's Web article I read breaks the problem down really well. This is a quote from the from the article. 
oxygen is expensive to manufacture. The bottles must go through rigorous testing for their structural integrity, fittings, and the oxygen itself, and the procedure takes weeks for every single bottle. A failing system high up on the mountain can easily kill a climber not acclimatized to go without oxygen. The brain will cloud up and vertigo enters in minutes. This is why you die immediately. <laughs> you can't just climb up and back. In bad cases, the climber either sits down in the snow to die or when trying to descend falls to his death. So what Todd was doing was collecting the empty Poisk bottles. It was manufactured in Russia initially for fighter pilots and now it has a quality license for climbing. Todd had a better idea. How about refilling the bottles in India for a fraction of the price? So what he was doing was taking these Russian bottles, going to India, refilling them, forget the lab tests, forget the licenses. It was Indian oxygen sold in Russian brand packages. That's what the article says. Okay. So climbers might use six to eight bottles of oxygen during an entire expedition. And with these, one in four would fail with these refilled bottles. Mm-hmm. So 25%. If a climber took three or four bottles with them to the summit, about half could fail. Gosh. In a 1999 expedition, one climber said he went through six bottles before he found one that worked. And after that, one out of every three failed. Oh, wow. This is not a place to be in. When you're at the summit and you find out your shit don't work. This is where you want to spend money. Like you want to spend money on good equipment. Yes. Henry Todd was sued once over the death of a climber, Michael Matthews, because oxygen that was supplied to him by Todd was faulty. But the judge ruled that it was an accidental death, and that sometimes happens on Everest. And he said there's just no proof that met the requirements for manslaughter or murder. So people have been taken to court and sued for deaths on Everest. Which but seems like it'd be really, it's really hard, hard to, to prove, prove though. Right. But no, it needs, sorry, I'm, I'm adjusting. It needs to happen because if you're stealing people's stuff and they die, you are responsible. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's hard to prove that you are fully responsible because they could be like, this could happen or this could happen. They're in this deadly situation. I just want to know what a waiver is like. If you want to sign off for an Everest expedition, I should have emailed one of them and said, look, I can't afford to go. And obviously I'm in no shape to go. Can I just like read your fine print? <laughs> they probably have like an ironclad agreement where you have to accept the risks. Well, yeah, Absolutely. In 1996, Tomatinas Georgian, God, I cannot pronounce this name good, S-J-O-R-G-E-N. I'm just going to call them Tomatina. So they jumped on a last-minute expedition with Henry Todd. This is the same year as the big storm that Into Thin Air documents and the movie Everest, you know, obviously, because it's based off Into Thin Air. Mm -hmm. The big 1996 storm, this is the same year. Their trip was plagued with problems, too. They had low food supplies, bad equipment. People kept getting sick. They were at a lower camp on May 10th, and this is the day of the big storm, and they were listening over the radios to all the chaos that was going on above them. Tina said that survivors came down the mountain looking like they were walking off a battlefield. Oh, God. She said they looked rough. A lot of climbers decided just to pack it up and leave that year and not even try it, but Tom and Tina decided they wanted to continue on to the summit and try for it. But they couldn't until Henry Todd sent up more oxygen bottles and another mask that they could use. Now, during this storm, there was a man named Beck Weathers. He was caught in the storm, but survived overnight, laying out there 
like in the snow exposed to the elements really he had no mask on his face and no gloves on his hands and people thought he was dead i mean he's pretty yeah. much frozen <laughs> the next morning people say it looked like a zombie was walking <laughs> into camp like he just kind of lumbers in and he didn't have a mask you know or gloves on and his like fingers and his face were all purple from like frostbite and stuff mm-hmm. so he's just kind of like lumbering on like barely moving <laughs> And he was under his own power. Um, other survivors thought Beck was going to die, so they just kind of kept him comfortable in a tent. But he yeah. didn't die. Are they sure he wasn't dead? Oh, my God. he was. His story is incredible. He got rescued by a helicopter. It was one of the most like high-altitude rescue that you can do by helicopter because the air is too thin out there and the you know propellers won't turn. Mm-hmm. So he had to have his arm, his right arm was amputated past his wrist. All of his fingers on his left hand were amputated and he lost parts of both feet and his nose. He was able to get his nose reconstructed though from like other parts. So when the Sherpa brought Tom and Tina the extra mask and oxygen they needed, Henry Todd told them, hey, it works fine. You just have to clean out the mask first a little bit. So Tina looks inside and she's like, this mask is kind of bloody. Ew. And Dark Summit, Tina said, and this is a quote, Henry did what he said he would. He got me oxygen and a mask, but Beck Weathers' nose was still in it. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, God. A nose. Oh, no. No. No, no, no. No. No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, God. The nose just came off. Oh, God. Yeah. And he gave it. He gave that to somebody. As if it was just just rinse out the man's just nose, shake it out. It's okay, just shake it out. It's fine. Oh my god! So did he take it off of him, thinking that he was dead? Like, did he take it off the body, or did he just maybe found it? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, it was chaos up there. Somebody else could have mm-hmm. taken it off, and it could have just made its rounds. Like, hey, I have an extra mask. Who needs it? <laughs> and it comes with the nose. Oh my god! If god. you lose yours to frostbite, here's another. <laughs> here's another one. <laughs> just put this one on. Oh, oh, no thanks. Oh god, I couldn't imagine. So, say you're stuck on Everest now, among a few hundred hundred of your closest friends, who may or may not know what they're doing who may or may not cause problems for you down the road. (laughs) Your oxygen may or may not work right, depending on where you got it. You may or may not have a tent or supplies at the high camps. And you may literally run into somebody that's going to stop and leave you in the cold for standing in line for a few hours. This This is where we are now. So much fun. But we also paid $50,000 or more for our permit. (laughs) Plus several thousand more for food and gear and tips for your Sherpas. Travel. Any other, yeah, any other expenses that you may have. So you make the decision you want to try for the summit. You didn't come all this way for nothing, damn it. (laughs) You need to be prepared to see a dead body or to see a person on the verge of death because it is a common sight on Everest now. Mm. More than 300 people have died trying to reach the summit or on their way back down. And while many bodies are covered in snow or out of sight in some way, many others are not. In Into Thin Air, John Krakauer mentions that around 21,000 feet, he came upon an object wrapped in a blue plastic sheet, probably like a tarp or something. Mm-hmm. It was a body. He asked his guide about it, and the guide said it was likely the body of a Sherpa who died there a few years back. And John mm-hmm. wrote that he was very, like, just shaken and disturbed for the rest of the day. And he was kind of like crying in his tent later. He was not prepared to see that. Right. Later, he comes across another body, rather the lower half of one. <gasps> oh. 
And he said the first body shook him to his core, but the shock of the second body wore off almost immediately. So it's something how the reactions, you go from like, oh shit, bodies to, oh, oh it's bodies. Body. There's another one. What happened to the other half of it? Don't know. Obviously we don't know, but just very curious. He wrote that, quotes, it was as if there was an unspoken agreement on the mountain to pretend that these desiccated remains weren't real, as if none of us dared to acknowledge what was at stake here. Hmm. Anatoly Borkreev wrote in his book, The Climb, I don't know if this is the same body. It sounds like it. But he said, after about 30 meters on this new route, I noticed something unusual ahead, something dark protruding from the snow. At first, I thought it was a piece of equipment that had fallen down from a higher camp during a previous expedition. But as I moved closer, I noticed a pair of crampons attached to boots, and the boots were the lower half of a human body. Hmm. Immediately, there were questions. Who is this? What tragedy had befallen this person? I could only guess that this was a climber who several years earlier had fallen to his death from Lhotse, that's a mountain that's next to Everest, and whose body, drawn by gravity over a torturous trail, had been ravaged, broken apart, and finally brought into this place. That's kind of... Oh, that's sad. I know. I think it's kind of sweet, though, how he stopped and, like, wondered about them. Yeah, like, these were people at some point. They had stories. There's a section of Everest people call Rainbow Valley because there's many dead bodies still laying there. And they're all noted by their bright colored climbing boots and clothing. Mm -hmm. And speaking of boots, I want to talk about who might be Everest's most famous dead climber. May 10th, 1996, Siwing Paljor, he was an Indian climber, was climbing down and he got stuck in the bad storms. Same big 1996 storm but he was on the other side from the into thin air events he was with a 40 person expedition led by mohindir Singh. he was hoping to put the first indian on the summit via the northeast ridge this is the ridge that george mallory and andrew irvine took in 1924 now Singh was confident in his climber skills but he said that the expedition was quote mistake after mistake after a while and some of his climbers failed to follow clear instructions. This was in his official account of the events later. He said on the 10th of May that morning, the team was, there was some really strong winds around. So the team overslept and they got a later start. They didn't set out from camp until about eight o'clock rather than three 30 as planned. Three 30 in the morning is usually your start out time oh, that because thinks. that's when the weather's calmer. And given their extremely late start, they decided just to move further up the mountain and like fix the ropes and get the trail ready. Instead of going all the way to the summit that day, they would just fix kind of the trail and Mm -hmm. and whatever. And that way they're not going to be in a death zone in the dark. Right. They made progress with the ropes, but soon Sink heard somebody on the radio say, we're going to go on to the summit. Like they felt they were pretty close and they can make it. He said summit fever got to him and he said he tried to encourage them to come back down. Well, he said the radios kind of went dark for a while, and then they called back saying that they were on the summit. So he was happy for them, but he's like, get down now. (laughs) Come home. (laughs) Good job. Come home. ASAP. This weather is bad today. Like, this weather's not getting any better. So the storm hasn't hit yet, but it's coming up. Like, Mm -hmm. come down. So he got that radio call. They were on the summit at about 6 p.m., which is really late to be on the summit. Mm-hmm. A lot of expeditions set times like you summit by like noon or one o'clock and then you have to be down. Like mm-hmm. nobody, wherever you are at a certain time point, you have to turn around and come back. Yeah. 
so you're not climbing back down in the dark and the weather doesn't get bad later in the day. So the next morning, Sink learned that the three climbers hadn't returned yet. Oh. Here's where they had a bunch of problems. Climbers at the high camps were too tired and exhausted to help go look for them because of exhaustion from working that high up on the mountain and because the weather obviously is terrible. Any radio contact is sporadic because of the weather. And Sink asked the Japanese team if they would help look and they agreed. But their conversations all took place in Hindi, Japanese, and English. So there's a lot of confusion because nobody speaks yeah. the same languages. So he later learned that the Japanese team had pushed on to the summit and he wondered why they didn't help like they said they would. But the Japanese climbers said that they did try to help them. They countered the three climbers. They were tangled up in ropes at a location called the second step. You kind of have to rappel like down mm -hmm. it and climb up through ropes. So they helped them get untangled. And, like, got them on their way. But they were in really bad shape, they said. One climber, they said they didn't help because he was super tired. They were super tired and felt sick themselves. But they said this climber looked, quote, dangerous. Oh. And above 8,000 meters is not a place where people can afford morality. That's a quote from a book. Oh. Like, yeah. you have to you have to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. There was never any proof that this India team made the summit they were going to leave some prayer flags and things like that there. Um, the storm could have blown them away, mm -hmm. but they might have stopped at a place just below the summit, thinking it was the summit and come back down a little early. Either way, it doesn't matter. And we'll never know because all three climbers had died. Mm -hmm. Paljor died with his two climbing partners. Paljor was found in a cave on the ridge, and the cave that he was found in is a place where probably 80% of the climbers stop to take a break or eat or change their oxygen bottles, because it's like this little natural like windbreak. Mm -hmm. His body was so close to the rope that climbers used to have to literally step over his body to be able to continue on. Oh. So he died right there. It was moved further into the cave over time, you know, out mm -hmm. of the way, and it was still highly visible, though. And it's most notably because of his bright green climbing boots that he was wearing. I want to look this up. So Paljor now has his most common nickname as Green Boots. Green Boots. I feel like I've seen this before. You have. You have. Now, it's not 100% confirmed that Green Boots is Siwang Paljor, but a lot of people, that seems to be the common consensus. Aww. Sink said later of Paljor that he re uh, recalled him as being very talkative, like a child quote, like a child, and that he loved to attempt difficult rock climbs. Quote, he looked like a monkey when he climbed. <laughs> <laughs> so he said he also remembered Paljor's love of roast chicken, his tendency to sing mm -hmm. in his free time, and that he was always volunteering to take on different difficult jobs. He mm -hmm. was very helpful, like that, Singh said. Paljor wanted to do many things in his life. Mm. That makes me very sad. He seemed like he was a very enthusiastic, like, go-getter yeah. climber. And because of the cold and dryness on Everest, bodies that die and get stuck up there can be very well preserved. Yeah, I mean, he lo I, you can't, I'm just looking at his picture. Like, yeah. He just looks like a body that's laying there. Yeah, like he could be asleep. Yeah. And that was in 1996. Wow, that's crazy. So there's very few animals to eat you. Maybe a bird or so may come. That's probably all you're going to get. Um, your body won't decompose rapidly. It'll basically mummify itself and it mm -hmm. can keep in a well-preserved state for a really long time. So when climbers do see some bodies, they can appear kind of fresh, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better word. And often they're frozen in place in the positions they were in when they died. 
the first woman to die on Everest was a German woman named Hannelore Schmutz. She died in 1979 while on her descent from the mountain. One of her climbing partners had died earlier, so she sat down to rest. And then she just never got back up again. She was about 100 meters above Camp 4, which is pretty high up, but that's still so close. If she could have got to Camp 4, she could have gotten help. Yeah. She may have survived, and she may have, if she just had enough energy to get there. Yeah. An expedition in 1984 tried to move her body, but two people died trying to do so. So that's kind of why they don't try and move bodies, I guess? Yes. Um, it's very dangerous. Especially in the death zone, because again, you're dying while you're trying to do this. Is it worth it? Is one question some people ask. And plus, your body is made of primarily water and it's going to freeze. Your body can be heavy. Yeah. You're basically just, you're frozen solid. You're a huge ice cube. I feel like if I, if I was doing this, I would make sure people knew, at least like my friends and family, like, don't try and get me. Just leave me there. Just don't, don't worry. You know, I wonder if you do sign on for an Everest expedition, if they make you have any kind of end of life, like wishes. Like, do you sign a document saying, if I die on Everest, this is what I like, this want is done what with I want. my stuff or yeah. like, like, leave me there. Or, like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know if they do. I don't want to be left there. I wouldn't want I mean, people to risk honestly, anything. Roll my ass off a cliff or something. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, why do <laughs> I, don't I would rather just way. leave you there. <laughs> like, <laughs> hold on. I got to roll her down this cliff. I don't want to be in anybody's way. And furthermore, bodies can be frozen to the ground. So you might have to chisel them off a little bit. Yeah. That's just a lot. of. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It can take mm-hmm. hours and hours, if not days. And sometimes people do kind of roll them off to the side or into a crevasse or something, which sounds mm-hmm. very disrespectful if you just think of somebody just like rolling their body off the hill like I would be (laughs) but I mean people move them you know out of paths and out of sight and they don't just like chuck you over the side they call it being committed to the mountain and they just they might have like a moment of silence or like say a prayer or something and they're just kind of like they don't want to do it obviously it's not like you're taking out the trash it's like this is a human person who right like you have you ha- we have to move you off the trail somehow or whatever and it's like we're just going to yeah. put you at rest. I mean, and also if somebody is that passionate about climbing and they're climbing Everest, you kind of have to assume that they'd be like, "Yeah, get me out of the way so other people can can climb and do what I wanted to yeah. do." I could just see me like rolling you be like, "She wanted me to do this." Okay. <laughs> and you're like rolling me like a giant snowball. <laughs> like, it's okay. It's okay. She, she wanted told me this. to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should make me into a snowman, please. That's what Do I want. Do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> make me into a snowman first, and then put the little like carrot nose and the eyes and stuff. That's I get what arrested I for like abuse of a corpse. <laughs> she wanted this, guys. No, I'll sign a paper. You can carry it in your pocket. We have it on. We have it recorded now. <laughs> I'll have to be like, can I just go find this recording, please? She said it. This is only if I die on Everest, though. I don't okay. want you to, like, bring my body to Everest and, like, drag it up the mountain. <laughs> it's like Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> weekend at Bernie's on Everest. On Everest. Oh, this got weird. get behind that movie. That's our third movie that we're going to make. There you go. A climber named Arne Ness Jr., he was Norwegian, he recalled seeing Hannelore's body, and he wrote this. This is very haunting. 
quote, it's not far now. I can't escape the sinister guard. Approximately 100 meters above Camp 4, she sits leaning against her pack as if taking a short break. A woman with her eyes wide open and her hair waving in each gust of wind. It's the corpse of Hannelore Schmatz, the wife of the leader of a 1979 German expedition. She summited but died descending, yet it feels as if she follows me with her eyes as I pass by. Her presence reminds me that we are here on the conditions of the mountain. Oh, God. That's like being watched as you like climb up. Yeah, it's got to be eerie. Yeah. It's kind of similar to what John Krakauer said about bodies being reminders of kind of what's at stake here and how bad things can turn out. Mm-hmm. One YouTube video said um, that her body has since been either covered with snow or kind of blown out of sight by the wind. So perhaps natural processes have moved her out of view. Also, Mount Everest has a lot of earthquakes oh. and things too. So it's possible that things can get shaken up a little bit. I found a picture of her. You did? Mm-hmm. She looks like she's resting. Her backpack's gone, but she's just, like, chilling. This, Yeah, this must have been taken, like, she doesn't have hair left. So. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, she's just, like, looks like she's just kind of leaning. Like, all right, yeah, taking a rest. Just, yeah. Oh. I know. In 1998, um, an Australian climber whose name I'm going to withhold for reasons you'll find out later. I'm going to call him Bob. He died while making his summit attempt. Um, An expedition leader named Russell Bryce was heading down the mountain late in the season, and he saw Bob going up. And Russell told him that it's probably in your best interest to go back down now because everybody else at the high camps are breaking up, like they're breaking camp and headed back down for the season. But Bob Mm -hmm. kept going back up. So the next day, Russell saw a figure lying across some rocks. So he's like, hmm, I wonder what that is. So he climbs back up to check it out. And it was Bob. Mm -hmm. Bob was still clipped to the line, and Russell said his face was kind of distorted and his thermos was out, but the bottom of it was busted. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Yes. Now, the internet's still kind of young in 1998, and Russell hated all of the instant web reports that were coming out from Mount Everest. He asked Everest News, it was a popular online forum at the time, not to publish any details of this man's death, but they did. And I found the site, and they do report his death. And mm-hmm. they admit, they even admit that Russell asked them not to do it because Russell thought the next of kin should find out not online or by email or somebody else calling that somebody from Everest needs to do it in a more formal and respectful right. way. Right. Because a lot of people do find out online if some their loved one died on Everest. Right. So Russell was pissed. And even more so after he found that Bob had almost no belongings on him. Everest News reported that a Sherpa took Bob's belongings down the mountain because another man had turned around and the Sherpa thought that he was supposed to take both of their gear back down. Mm-hmm. So that could be an oversight. But in Bob's tent, Russell found a folder with a lawyer's name and a phone number inside and a ball of string. I don't know what that's about. No food, no ropes, no supplies, nothing else. Again, it may be because the Sherpa took down some stuff or maybe Bob sent it down. I don't know. Russell said he'd been haunted by Bob's death because he heard from some of his friends that when they were cleaning out his house, they found a map on the wall with Everest on it and a pen was put in the same spot where his body was found. Mm, I know, yeah. And Russell said that he's done a lot of cyanide poisoning for possums and critters in his lifetime and he suspects that's what the grimace on his face was from that. He thinks that Bob went up there, drank some cyanide concoction, busted the bottle 
of his thermos open so nobody else could drink it or use mm-hmm. it. And then he died there and that he climbed Everest with the purpose of taking his own life. Yep. And that's why I'm withholding the climber's yeah. real name because yeah. this is highly speculative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just have a person's account and we don't know if this is true or not. Other right. deaths are documented and this is not so... Yeah, that was kind of, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, no, that's, that he just went up. I thought, oh, God, that's, that's why. If this is true, he may have done it at the end of season, so nobody, like, found him there. Another famous climber on Everest belongs to the man behind probably the mountain's most controversial story, and this is the body of British climber David Sharp. Have you heard about this story? Does it sound familiar? Um, No, it does not. This is the story where people say about 40 climbers passed him when he needed help and they, nobody stopped to help him. Mm-mm. I'll say it right now. This is not true. Oh, it's not true. No, plenty of people stopped to help him. Okay. Again, this is probably one of the things where the internet has, mm-hmm. you know, fact quote facts that come out so fast and people are outraged by it. But then when it, the true story comes out that, right. no, we did try to help him, then it's already overlooked and they're on to something else. Mm-hmm. But plenty of people did try to help him. In 2006, David was making his third attempt at the Everest Summit. Two years earlier, he tried his second Everest attempt without using bottled oxygen, but he brought two bottles with him just in case. Most climbers will go through a few bottles of oxygen on Summit Day, but David was determined to get by with as little as possible. Soon he found himself knowing that he would not make it to the summit and back without using both of his bottles and probably needing another bottle or two. Mm-hmm. So he became so hypoxic that he forgot to use them when it counted. Oh. So he got them out of his backpack. He left. He just set them down in the snow and left them. Oh, and he God. walked down the mountain. Oh, God. Those bottles were worth about $900 each. God. And so besides losing that, he lost two toes to frostbite. And on his third trip, he just kind of laughed it off as kind of a lesson learned. He's like, all right, so... Don't do need, that again. I need to get my shit together a little more. <laughs> on May 14th, 2006, David was seen climbing up the slope of Everest on the Tibetan side. This is the north side. Okay. He stopped in a cave to rest, either going up or coming down. We don't know. Sitting beside him was none other than the body of Siwang Paljor, a.k.a. Green Boots. By now, David had been climbing for about 20 hours straight. No sleep, no rest, climbing for 20 hours straight. With only two bottles of oxygen, and we don't know how much food he had. We don't know. He did not have a radio or satellite with him or satellite phone to call down to camp and talk to anybody else. He was in this cave about 1,000 feet from Camp 3 where help was available if he needed it. It's kind of like Hannah Lord's, like if he just could have made it to camp. Mm-hmm. Just make it to camp. And this is where the controversy sets in. Because it said that many, many climbers hiked past him. He obviously needed help and nobody stopped. They were so focused on their own summit bid and they got greedy. So they ignored a man who could be dying so they could Mm -hmm. have their, their moment at the top. After midnight is when most climbers start their summit trek. That way they can be on the summit during the morning. Mm -hmm. The weather's best in the morning. They can climb down and they don't, they will not be in the death zone at night. Takes a long time to climb Mount Everest. How long does it take? Like hours. Like, yeah. If you start out, say you start at like midnight, you may get back at like, I don't know, sometime in the evening the next day. Okay. Because storms can blow in in the afternoons too. So the goal is to be on the summit and back down before that happens. Okay. 
On May 15th, shortly after midnight, about 40 climbers hiked up that northeast ridge. And this route takes you right past the cave. So, so this is the one that people used to step over Green Boots' body. Mm-hmm. So it's literally right there. You can't not notice somebody right there because the route's right next to it. Okay. Yeah. And you'll see these bright green boots. Yeah, you're going to automatically look over. Reports about David Sharp varied. Some climbers say they saw him alert and fiddling with his equipment. Others said that he was simply sitting down resting and they asked if he needed any help. And he just like waved him on. He's like, no, I'm cool. Like, y'all go on. Some people said he was still fixed on the line, which means the climbers would have to unhook their own line to get around him. Mm -hmm. And some climbers said they didn't see him at all or thought that maybe that was green boots. Mm-hmm. So having already expected to see a body in that location, they may have ignored David or just oh, kind of yeah. like averted their eyes a little thinking that was thinking him. Thinking it was a body. Yeah. And, and walked by. Which some climbers might have walked past him and, and not realized. Um, it's beyond cold outside. And climbers are trying to stay warm to keep their oxygen from freezing up and keep moving so they don't lose fingers and toes to frostbite. Mm-hmm. Plus it's pitch black outside and... You only have the only lights coming from your headlamp. So maybe some climbers didn't see him. Yeah. But coming down now, it's daylight. And bright snowsuits are highly visible on Everest. It's just not true that climbers ignored him. Some might have, thinking he was beyond help. But several did stop to help him. Climbers reported him as having taken off his gloves and his hat and his oxygen mask. This is likely paradoxical undressing. Paradoxical undressing. His nose was black from frostbite and his cheeks were turning purple and people tried to move him, but they were unable to because they said like his legs were kind of frozen from the knees down. He could Mm -hmm. not bend his legs. There was one climber that was climbing and he came to that cave and he saw another pair of boots there. And he was like, okay, it was David Sharp. He was still clipped to the line, but David was sitting down and he was unresponsive. So this climber called out to him. He said, quote, there's no movement from him and there's nothing really that could be done. And he prepared to see green boots, but he wasn't prepared to see a man in his final hours, he said. Mm-hmm. A group of Sherpas happened upon him and they gave him a bottle of oxygen and they tried to move him into the sun to warm him up. But the Sherpas were still unable to get him standing and he was unable to stand upon his own. Basically, David is kind of in this position where he's just kind of like sitting, chilling with his hands over his knees and his knees pulled up to his chest. Yeah. He can't move. He, he can't move. Cannot. He's frozen. He's frozen in place. And the Sherpas are coming down too from the summit bid. So they're near exhaustion themselves. They know that David would have to be carried down, which they're unable to do for that reason. And also they would have needed a lot more people to help them. Mm-hmm. And like there you was, said, it's about your own survival. Right. There was one Sherpa named Chaya. I don't have his last name. He radioed down to Russell Bryce, the same expedition leader that found the body. That was a suspected suicide. That the, Hey, there's a man here and he's not responding. You know, he's not dead, but he's dying. Like, what can we do? And then another Sherpa removed his own mask to give it to David. They, they had to convince Chaya to, like, continue on down because he was kind of shocked. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to leave the man there. And this poor Sherpa, he was crying, like, on his way down. Just, like, bawling, crying out in the I open. probably would, too. That's... Later, he said, yeah, he felt really, really terrible about it. And later, he said that he understand why Russell told him to come back down because, you know, Russell has to be responsible for his own clients and Sherpas. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I understand now that I have to look out for myself. Like, you can't save everybody. Yeah. 
but that would still be hard. Like, uh, really hard. Because you want to be able to save them. You you know, in your mind, it's like, okay, we'll just get you up and get you down the mountain. And I just don't fine, know what would be going through David's mind either. Right. Like, I don't know what would be going through David's mind either. Because you can't move. Like, how much brain function do you have? Are you aware that people are trying to help you, but you just can't talk? It'd be like being in a coma and hearing people, yeah. but not being able to communicate. No, I do wonder, like, how much he was aware. Yeah. Because you think if you're... I hope not a lot. When you're going through that, like, if you're at the point of paradoxical undressing, like, your brain's probably being affected. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Like, your brain's playing tricks on you. Your body's playing tricks on you at that point. So, yeah. Other climbers stopped to help him and try to force him to drink hot drinks. But they said that he was frozen solid and they just couldn't get him to move. Um, they said the nose in the center of his face was now, like, totally black and his cheeks were really purple. So, it was, like, frostbite's getting worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Another climber said he watched in horror as three men tried to pull David out of the cave and strengthen his legs, but they could not pull his leg open. Three oh. guys are trying to tug on his leg just to get it to bend, and it won't do it. Yeah. A climber named Bill Krause said, quote, people ask me, how do you know someone's not in trouble? And I'm like, it's summit day. Everyone's tired. People mm -hmm. are always stopping or taking a break or sitting to the side. You can't know, and you can't check on every person. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me in a logical way. Mm -hmm. needless to say david sharp died in the cave next to green boots and then the story spread down the mountain and among the climbing community and then around the world that david sharp died because everybody ignored him when he needed help oh well no there was that's even, not true there was a documentary crew filming that year and they came across david's body they were recording and have video evidence of themselves asking questions and trying to help him oh so as he was in there the documentary crew walked by yes and they saw him and they're like, hey, we got to help this guy. So they yeah. did. And all the time their cameras are rolling. Mm -hmm. So David Sharp did get help. Several climbers stopped to assist him. And it sounds terrible to say, but he was just kind of too far gone for anybody to properly rescue him. Mm -hmm. And it actually took some doing to even find out who he was. Russell Bryce took the time out from his own expedition to go from tent to tent to see which group he might have belonged to. Mm -hmm. He found an empty tent with David's passport in it and others who encountered David identified him and said, yeah, that's the guy. And David, allegedly, the only words that he said were Asian trekking, and that was the group he was with. Hmm. So they were able to put two and two together and figure out that's who he was. Yeah. Russell Bryce was the one who took David's personal effects back to his parents and met up with them once they were down off the mountain. He took care of filing David's death certificate in China for his parents. And I read that the documentary crew gave that video footage to Russell, too, who then gave it to David's parents so they could be the ones to decide what they wanted done with it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they would want to see it. Maybe they wouldn't. And and that way it's just not going to end up like online. It's like, ooh, dying right. man on Everest, you know? Right. So I think that was really nice of him to do. Mm -hmm. Russell Bryce sounds like a really good guy. Russell Bryce got a lot of blame for David's death for some reason. Why? Because I think his expedition was one of the 40 climbers that were like starting up. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, why didn't you do anything? And he's like, dude, I did. Like, yeah. other climbers start to help. Like, I have, like, he did. He tried. So the next year, Russell flew David's parents to base camp to have a small service for him there at a place they memorialize climbers that have fallen on the mountain. They call it the mound. Oh. Oh. And he's got a little plaque there. So David was climbing with a group called Asian Trekking. They offered access to the permit, but barely anything else. So you're able to get to base camp and the permit to go up to the summit with the help of them, possibly some food and supplies. 
But past a certain point, you're on your own. You decide your own acclimation schedule, your food, you pick your own weather window. You don't have any Sherpas. So if you want to hire one, again, you need like a freelancer. You have to hire one on mm-hmm. your own. Um, David was an independent climber. He didn't have any of that. And that's a large part of the risk that comes with independent climbing. Um, other expeditions do offer Sherpa support, guides with you all the time, medical care and doctors, food, supplies when you need it. They'll send things back and forth to you up and down the mountain should you need it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys look out for people. Russell Bryce has a system to where he's kind of lower on the mountain with a telescope and he's watching people go along the ridge. Okay. And he's got like satellite phones and radios and every guy or every client has like a guide and a Sherpa assigned to them, et cetera. And he knows certain points on the mountain and certain times that you should reach certain points. So if you're climbing too slow, he'll turn you around. So he radios up to the guide and he's like, dude, you're not at the two o'clock checkpoint. Like you're climbing too slow. You're not going to make it turn around now. And he makes them turn around off the mountain. He's got a well-oiled machine running. Yeah. It sounds like it. It sounds like he knows it well. He knows the mountain well. And he didn't lose many climbers that way either. But David didn't have that. So I hate to say it, it, David just made a bad choice Mm -hmm. and it just ended tragically for him because sometimes Mm -hmm. people just make choices that end tragically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not his fault. It was just a choice. I mean, he was simply inexperienced and we talked about the dangers of inexperience and he was unprepared. That's Mm -hmm. all it comes down to. And he was climbing alone. He didn't have somebody to help him out and to tell him, Hey, I think you need help or to help him out. We need to get back. Yeah. Also in 2006, 11 people died and half of them were affiliated with Asian Trekking, the same group that David was with. Is Asian Trekking still around? I think so. It's just the danger of inexperience. It's kind of like the the budget climbing group. If you can't afford the $50,000 all-inclusive resort expedition that Russell Bryce offers, you know, you could just kind of get the thrift store version. It's like the Spirit Airlines of Everest Climbing. Somebody, I forget which book it was, and I forget which person said it, but one person said it was like the Walmart of climbing. (laughs) I guess if one side is like something really nice, then this is like the Walmart version. Oh, God, we're going to get a call from Walmart. (laughs) We're going to get a call from Asian Trekking. And it's it's funny. It's not funny, but it's funny as an ironic. Um, Twelve people died in 1996 during the big storm. Eleven people died in 2006 in near-perfect weather. Weird. Because the better the weather, the more people are going to try to climb the mountain that day. That's true. That makes sense. And the more climbers are there, the more crowded it gets, and then the more dangerous it gets. Mm, That makes sense. And a lot of people choose to climb independently because they don't want to pay a whole lot of money Mm -hmm. to climb Mount Everest because it's expensive. Or a lot of people kind of shop around too, you know, like these guys will give me the same expedition for the, like a $20,000 cheaper. Yeah. And it's like, all right, we'll go with them. You might not get the quality. Cheaper is not always better. No. Sometimes people will be turned down for an expensive expedition because the expedition leader might think you don't have enough experience. Like, Mm -hmm. no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to put you on my permit. They're going to end up on the mountain anyway, because they'll just go sign up independently. Yeah. Yeah, there. I mean, I wish there was something that could stop that. You know, again, it's like, well, this guy obviously like, he's going to be, he's going to cause an issue because 
mm-hmm. I know he doesn't have experience. So yeah, he's going to cause a hole up and be dangerous to everybody else. And so often is it it's safer though, to just bring them along thinking, well, they're going to do it anyway. Probably Maybe not. we can help them out. I don't know. Well, they probably won't either if they're not paying for it either. Like, like you yeah. paid for Asian trekking. You need to go with Asian trekking. We only brought enough food and supplies for my people. Right. You know, it's very apocalyptic up there. It kind of sounds like if like you were it. in a zombie apocalypse and you have your own groups, like each expedition is its own group. Yes. <laughs> Those might be people who are super prepared for the apocalypse when it hits yeah. climbers. So often the inexperienced climbers are the ones that need rescuing because they didn't seek out better options for their expeditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. So we talked about how David couldn't really be rescued um, and like Hannelore Schmatz, how his body was frozen to the ground. So I'm guessing he's still there. I think so. Yeah. If you're going to extract his body, you're going to spend hours in a death zone, which uh, is yeah. bad already but also you're right in the path of other climbers you might need about 10 or 12 people mm-hmm. to like extract his body from the cave and bring him down you are not going to be able to climb around that cave it's going to create a straight up like a construction zone if they close a highway and there's no yeah. way around it that's yeah. basically what would happen and i don't know if they can do it other times of the year either the climbing season usually runs around may which is this time of year because this is when the weather is best Mm-hmm. other times the, the weather is just too bad so i imagine that's why you know people don't climb in september often because you know the weather's just too bad i wonder why i guess storms or something in the summer like what's yeah, it like storms in the summer? and like with the winter it's like it's so much snow and stuff and wait just... i don't think anybody would climb in the winter <laughs> no it's like a really bad idea i think they have like monsoon storms around india and stuff too and like that oh, makes yeah. it really bad and it might take hours, if not days, to bring his body down. They have to bring him through a point of really tough terrain known as the exit cracks. And it's extremely dangerous work. And a lot of people, they're going to have to risk their own lives to go after the body of someone else. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people are going to be willing to do that. Yeah. And if you do find people to do it, which there have been cases where people have extracted bodies and brought them home for burials, they are expensive. Mm-hmm. So most bodies are left where they are. Another thing that about David's death that angers people is that during that same season, days after David had died, there was a man named Lincoln Hall. He was just under the summit. He spent the night exposed and he was rescued. What? He was a lot higher than David Sharp was and it took 20 Sherpas to help bring him back down. So obviously people got mad. Like, why did you save this person and not David? But here's another, his story is incredible too. But also, Lincoln Hall could walk on his own, and David Mm -hmm. couldn't. Right. That's a huge difference. Yeah. And his story is kind of wild. He wrote a book on it, too. He survived the night, exposed, like, just below the summit, and climbers were coming up the next morning, and they saw him. (laughs) This is kind of funny. They saw him standing upright. He had no oxygen on, no mask, no gloves, no food, no sleeping bag, nothing. He was undressed from the top down, like he was, like, changing his undershirt from his coveralls or something. And he just, like, looks at the guys, and he's like, sup, guys? Surprised to see me here. (laughs) And he's just, like, so casual. (laughs) I wonder if he just was not thinking straight. Oh, my God. He was was out of his mind. Like, (laughs) out of his mind. He talks about, like, hallucinations and all this stuff that he saw. And 
he was able to move most of the time and these Sherpas were helping him down and he kept seeing bruises and stuff on his body. And he was talking about how the Sherpas were so mean and beating him with his ice axe and telling him to go down faster and, and all this. And they're like, we are not doing anything. They were trying to get him hu- to hustle. And then later on, he saw those Sherpas and they're kind of side-eyeing each other from across the room. And he's like, those, <laughs> those are the Sherpas that beat my ass coming down the mountain. And then the Sherpas are like, dude, you were beating our ass coming down the mountain. We're trying to help you. <laughs> so we don't know what happened lincoln hall was like i swear they were beating me up but he was like my brain was so foggy and so hypoxic that like you don't know what's real and what's not yeah i think your brain just kind of goes haywire at that point which is why you have things like paradoxical undressing yeah does not make sense but in the moment you're like okay this makes sense i'm hot david sharp was affectionately known as dirtbag among his climbing buddies because of his bare bones approach to mountaineering when his mother worried about him getting into trouble, he had told her that nobody is ever really alone on Everest and that there are climbers everywhere. Hmm. That breaks my heart. He was 34 when he died. He had quit his job as an engineer to climb, but he planned to start a job teaching math upon his return from Everest. Michael Cotis, who wrote High Crimes, met him and befriended him on that trip, and David told him he barely scraped together enough money for that trip, and it would likely be his last try before he gave up on Everest altogether. He had climbed one 8,000-meter mountain before and pursued mountaineering as a hobby. And he was said to have been kind of a loner, but he was very friendly. His mother gave a rare interview where she seemed to understand what happened, and she doesn't blame anyone. She said, quote, your only responsibility is to save yourself, not to try to save anyone else. Yeah. Good for her, though, because I would probably be ticked off at people. Yeah, I could see where people would be very angry. Well, yeah, because you think it could just take him one person to do something, but... Yeah, she seems to be very realistic and, like, very honest Mm -hmm. that she knows what happened and it was just a tragedy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of these climbers, too, that die, like, by telling stories like this, and even though it it may have been David Sharp's inexperience that got him killed or, you know, someone else's issue or whatnot, their deaths don't have to be in vain. Because other climbers can look to this and say, okay, we know how this person died and what the problem was. How can we fix it to make sure it doesn't happen to other climbers? Yeah. Or people who think that, oh, yeah, I'll climb Everest. No problem. That'll be easy. I hike and I climb all the time to maybe think about that again. Yeah, for real. So I want to tell one more story of my favorite body on Everest, if you can call it that. It's... Not really my favorite body, but it's my That's favorite dark. climber. I know. I don't mean it that way. It's my favorite climber, and it's my favorite story from a climber on Mount Everest. Okay. Even Mount Everest cannot escape the effects of global warming. So as glaciers recede and ice melts, bodies that were once hidden and covered by snow can resurface. Mm-hmm. So in 1999... During an expedition to locate Andrew Irvine's body, he was one of the guys that went on the 24 expedition with George Mallory, one of the early ones. A really well-known mountaineer named Conrad Anker noticed something off the main ridge a little bit. And it was an unusually warm season that year, and there was hardly any snow around, where there usually is a lot of snow. So he said he said he saw something that was a bright patch of white, but it wasn't a rock and it wasn't snow. So he went over to investigate it because it looked a little off. He walked away from his teammates and he went to go check it out. Turns out it was a body. Oh. Conrad looked it over and it was laying face down so you can't see the man's face. He saw natural fiber clothing and hobnail boots. 
and the climber had a broken leg and his clothing had been torn away by the elements and his like back and backside of his body are all exposed. I've seen this picture. You have? Mm-hmm. Yep. So Conrad radio his teammates and they had them all meet up around the body and they all gathered and some climbers were like, all right, so now what, you know, <laughs> do we try to find ID? Do we leave him alone? What do we do? Cause they just found this body and they were like, well, what's respectful? Like, what do we do? That's appropriate in the situation. Mm-hmm. Eventually they decide to try to find ID because they wanted to find out who the climber was and to find out his story. And they figure they'll do it once then they'll cover his body, and that way he won't be disturbed in the future. So the hobnail boots were a big thing, because that's a really very like early climbing uh, piece of gear. Okay. So they take their video camera, and they go over the whole thing, kind of like a forensics team would. They're like going from mm-hmm. head to toe, and they're kind of narrating it as they go. And they're like, we have natural fiber clothing. It's like, here's one shoe's on, one shoe's off. And they're just kind of going over the body. Yeah. They mentioned Al's body's kind of mummified. There's a rope around his waist. He's got a fracture in his leg. So maybe he fell and his leg broke on impact. They examined his clothes. They looked under the collar and there's a name written on it. Uh Uh-oh. It says George Mallory. (gasps) Oh, my God. It's probably the oldest body that they found on Everest so far. He was with Andrew Irvine. They were looking for Andrew. And they found the other one. (laughs) And they found George Mallory. Yeah. The team was such in shock after discovering who they found. And after having documented their find, they gathered some rocks and like buried his body. They put mm-hmm. like a little mound over it. Um, th- somebody recited Psalm 103 and people were kind of crying in the video a little bit. Like it's really, really nice. And they're all kind of touched by it too. Was he just covered by snow this whole time? I think so. Wow. I think he may have been. But nobody knows if um, Andrew Irvine and George Mallory made the summit anyway. And there's kind of a mystery behind it because there were some clues like like George Mallory's climbing goggles were in his pocket indicating he could have been coming down at night mm-hmm. and not during the day. He said he had a picture of his wife that he was going to leave on the summit. He had no picture of his wife with him that oh. he had carried up with him. Mm-hmm. Andrew Irvine has the camera. Yes. Do they need to find him? I think that's why they were looking for Andrew because yeah. he had the camera. Um, representatives from Kodak, I read this a long time ago, said that depending on the condition of the film, they may be able to be able to process it. So huh. imagine if they did find it. I don't know if they would now. I read that such a long time ago, but <laughs> does anybody <laughs> does anybody take like film to be developed anymore? <laughs> it's from nineteen twenty four. So <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you have all of these climbers that looked up to George Mallory and Hillary and all mm-hmm. of these great climbers that came before them. So I bet it was so meaningful for them to just find the body of one of their heroes. Yeah. Like and you to be started able to this put all. It at rest. You started yes. all of this. In a good way. I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that like you started this. Like, <laughs> no, like you started this passion for people. I mean, so it, it doesn't always have to be this morbid, creepy, ooh, bodies on Everest. They're watching me as I walk by, you know, kind of creepy factor yeah. on Everest. There's a lot of respect out there, too, you know? Yeah. Well, because you know how most of them got there. It's not like you're yeah. walking down the street and there's all these bodies laying around. Like, yeah. And a <laughs> little different. They were all on Everest by choice. They all made a choice to climb Everest, and they probably know the risks. Right. And before I wrap this up, I do want to talk about what it said to be like when you freeze to death on Everest. 
this is what from it the book. said to be like yeah like this is what you experience oh i thought i thought it was like a directional like this is what you do when you freeze to death <laughs> well <laughs> like well i'm freezing to death <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is what to expect what would happen to you this is from the book dark summit and they get a lot of this from talking to people like lincoln hall and beck weathers and people that have been mm-hmm. on the brink and they've come back death by hypoxic hypothermia comes really slow in the beginning, your hands and feet are going to tingle and throb. There might ache as if they're being squeezed by a vice. Speech slurs and balance slips. Your brain is going to start to be starved of oxygen. It might swell and hallucinations and dementia may set in. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get a little, a little crazy. Your nerve endings are going to go numb and your heat is going to go to your core to save all your vital organs. So all that pain that you feel in your feet and legs and your limbs is going to start to recede. This is the point where people start to feel hot. Mm -hmm. So now people are going to start to undress. So your fingers and toes and your face are going to be what freezes first. Your skin is going to turn pale with frost nip. That's the first step. Then frostbite will set in. Your skin will kind of turn really white. Then it's going to turn red and then a shade of purple and finally black. Black. Once it turns super dark, it's called cellular necrosis. And that's where your living tissue is permanently destroyed. Mm -hmm. When people go up to David Sharp's body and they say his face had turned black, that's pretty, he's pretty bad at that point. In the final stages, your limbs are going to become immobile as your blood tries to preserve your heart and lungs and vital organs. That's probably the point where I think David Sharp was when people found him. Mm Mm-hmm. Your vision is going to blur, and some people who survived these super close calls describe it as being almost peaceful and serene. Beck Weather said he felt warmer, and he had felt like a sense of floating, like he was just chilling in the air. Wow. But if you don't survive, you stay in the state until your brain activity ceases and your heart sputters out, and then that's it, and then you're it's, gone. You're done. Okay. It sounds very painful in the beginning, but I think in the end, it's just kind of like, all right. Falling asleep? Just Yeah peaceful yeah i guess so so how do you stop all of the deaths and traffic jams and deaths due to traffic jams and problems on everest well it's hard to say everest is governed by two governments tibet and nepal so each side has its own rules Mm -hmm. most people say a good way to curtail the problem is by limiting the number of permits per year but some people think you know who's to tell nepal how to run their country Because Mm -hmm. climbing Everest is a huge part of Nepal's income. Yeah. Huge part of it. So are they really going to put a limit on how much money they can make? A lot of people are going to say no. After David Sharp died, Russell Bryce and representatives from Asian Trekking met with Chinese officials to try to discuss regulations and rescue programs and try to figure out a way to prevent it from happening. This is why I think Russell Bryce is a good guy. They hoped to make requirements that people had to be trained and they had to have experience in 8,000 meter mountain climbing. And they proposed having a rotating crew of Sherpas high on the mountain that helps everybody in need that aren't mm. just tied to one expedition because yeah. that, and everybody pays into it. It's like a pool. And that way no team is without help and Sherpa teams don't wear themselves out and they can have like fresh people rotating in and out in case they need rescues. Right. You basically, it's like having an EMS team or something. You just Mm -hmm. like call like Sherpa 911 and (laughs) and it's like, Hey, I'm in trouble. Come get me. And then somebody will come get you. Yeah. To my knowledge though, nothing really came of that. So I wonder why I think it's like, really good ideas. Why you're making people safer. I think 
another thing that might help. Do you remember in The Walking Dead when they were all fighting the saviors? And, like, each group had an armband that was a color. Like, Alexandria had red and Hilltop had blue and the kingdom Mm -hmm. had green or whatever it was. I think people from Expedition should wear some kind of reflective, like, vest like construction workers do when they're working on the highway. Mm -hmm. Like, just throw one on. Or, like, some hunter orange or something. Or a band around your leg or something. And that way, if you see somebody like David Sharp and nobody knows who he is, you have a color... Or a number and then a climber number. Like, say I'm climbing, I'm with expedition number two. And then my climber number is 47. Mm -hmm. And so they would look at me and they would look at the little reflective tape or the number on my leg. And it's like, okay, 247. So they radio down to base camp because in my world, they have a record of everybody Mm -hmm. who's climbing on Everest. And then it's like, okay, number two is, you know, Kristen's expedition. Number 47 is Dana. And it's like, and then they radio to you. It's like, Kristen, your girl needs help. Go get her. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. you know does that I'm make like, sense damn it dana and you're like i gotta go roll her off i a gotta cliff. go roll her down damn the it, mountain i gotta, gotta make a snowman send up the carrot for the nose <laughs> i need but buttons does, does that make sense My rescue yes, <laughs> what happens so if a hiker's by themselves well right they now they'll have to own. register Oh, yeah. So have yeah. to register mm-hmm. for a number. So it can be like, okay, this is an independent, like, yep. independent hikers or independent climbers have a specific color. So, you know, like, blue is independent. This person's independent. They're number 50. This is so and so. Yes. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. That's how okay. I think they should do it. All right. Let's, you contact them, Paul. <laughs> you contact Tibet. I'll contact we'll, Tibet. We'll, we'll make get it this taken care of. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I just think if they had some kind of like central record keeping system, it would really help and people could find out information they needed as fast as they needed. And I love the idea of the rotating Sherpa crew that everybody pays into. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like all we do is rescues, yes. you know, I love that idea. Anatoly Borkreev wrote in his book, the climb that he foresaw a time when the entire route to the summit would be fixed by a team of Sherpas and all the expeditions would just use that route and have to pay the Sherpas as contractors. I found that very interesting. Mm hmm. Currently, um, Sherpas from a few expeditions might fix the ropes and ladders and establish the route, and other teams just chip in financially to pay them or with equipment to help compensate the teams mm-hmm. who supplying the labor. But of course, there are freeloaders, and there's people that use this equipment and take up time on the route and don't compensate, so it's not a smooth process. I would, I mean, I could see a bunch of Sherpas getting together and just kind of like doing everything by themselves, and it's just like paying a toll. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. and you just like give some to them if you want to go up. Mm-hmm. Some people also think that raising the price of the permits might help. I mean, right now it's still really expensive, but oh, gosh, it's so freaking expensive. How much are you going to make it? I just want to know who has an extra $60,000 laying around that record numbers of people are climbing Everest yeah. year after year. Yeah. People are going to pay whatever if they really want to do something. I guess so. I don't think that's, that's a solution. I mean, it would um, filter out people that were inexperienced and less serious about it. David Sharp probably would not have climbed had he could, couldn't have afforded to. Mm-hmm. But then some people ask, will this make Mount Everest accessible to rich people only? Yeah. Yeah. So the mountain is back open for climbing as of this year, but with some new regulations. But in my opinion... These regulations come from a PR standpoint and less of a let's take care of climbers standpoint. Mm -hmm. After that 2019 viral photo of the line at the summit came out, the government of Nepal said it was going to require climbers and guides to get permission from the Department of Tourism 
before being allowed to publish images of other people on the mountain. Yeah, I don't like that. (laughs) I don't know how you're going to enforce this. So if you're on the summit and you take a picture, or if you're somewhere on the mountain and there's climbers behind you, what are you going to do? Photoshop them out? I don't know. That's that's not being transparent. No. And you're rarely alone at the summit. You Mm -hmm. cannot possibly take a summit photo and like not have people in it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how they're going to enforce this. As I said before, the summit's about the size of two ping pong tables. And if you're up there with like seven or eight people, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just going to be you and like sky in the background. Yeah. <laughs> so the director of Nepal's Department of Tourism told the Kathmandu Post that each climber can take and share and make as many images and videos of their group or of themselves but they'll face action if they share photos of other climbers without the department's consent. So he said it's always been against the law for Everest climbers to share photos of other Everest climbers without the government's permission. But this year, they actually want to enforce that law. That just seems like they're just covering up a problem. Like, you're not actually fixing a problem. Again, it's a PR issue. You're, you're mm-hmm. fighting the issue of public outrage of climbers on Everest and not climbers are dying on Everest. Because you're not crowding, fixing the problem. You're just hiding the problem. Exactly. Another last minute change has kind of thrown the climbing season into a little bit of chaos because the government of Nepal has decided that summit attempts should be granted in order that the teams receive their permits. So first people to buy a permit gets the first shot at the summit. Okay. Explorers web says that the permit number six to 38, we're going to have to summit in an earlier weather window followed by permit numbers 40 through 68. And the remaining climbers have to wait for a third weather window. If the new regulation creates difficulty among the climbing teams, it's the responsibility of the expedition agencies to coordinate the summit pushes and maybe agree to exchange turns if they want. So whatever they do, he said the number of climbers in one push should not be greater than 150 or 170. So basically they're making people take turns and have to wait. It's safer that way. I don't know how climbers are going to react to this because everybody wants to go when the weather's the best. This is part of the problem that happened in 1996 during the storm because one expedition said they were going to summit on one day because the weather was best. And then another expedition was like, well, we're going to go that day too. And then a third expedition was like, well, if they're going, we're going to go. So of course there's more people around. China has canceled the 2021 season this year. Um, again, on the Tibet side of the mountain. So there's no climbing the Northeast Ridge for a second year in a row. However, Nepal reopened and they've issued the record number of permits already. So everyone's just going to that side. Yes. Um, I read a story, too, that China was going to send up a team to put up a barrier at the summit, which I don't know why. Why? To keep people from going up one side and down the other. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make sense. Some expeditions this year have already packed up and left because... There's a COVID outbreak at base camp. Oh, no. Masks and social distancing are still encouraged, but still there's no parties or dinners or get-togethers like there normally is. Usually a bunch of people gather for dinners and have big parties and stuff in the tents. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to have a negative COVID test in order to get into base camp, but COVID being COVID, we know that you can test negative and a few days later test positive. positive. Yep. Plus, my God, can you imagine trying to climb? You're already having breathing and oxygen issues. And now you've, you're sick with something that is causing oxygen issues and respiratory issues. That's the next thing I had in my oh. notes. 
it's it's terrible. Like you're already climbing to a place where breathing is going to be a struggle, and now you want to put a respiratory illness on top of it, right? And extreme fatigue. Like you're already going to be fatigued from climbing, and then COVID makes you extremely fatigued, right? Yeah. The director general of the Department of Tourism told Outside Online, there are media reports about COVID cases at base camp, which we don't believe. We have also not been informed about any company canceling their expedition. A press release from the Department of Tourism on May 7th said that they wanted to request that all concerned do not publish or circulate any information that would create fear amongst mountaineers and their families without coordinating with government agencies first. No. Only disseminate notices that have been verified by official authorities. Sorry, don't trust that. Again, in Nepal, the climbing season was closed for 2020 due to COVID. One and a half million people lost their jobs. And they, Everest tourism usually brings in about $700 million a year. Whoa. And it's not just climbing permits. It's cooks. It's people that sell, you know, trinkets and tourism. Mm-hmm. People that run restaurants in the villages before base camp. So much of Nepal's tourism is dependent on Everest. Mm-hmm. So one Sherpa said... We know there's a risk of catching COVID on the mountain, but if we don't climb, our friends will die of hunger. Oh, my God. So some of the Sherpas feel like they have to do it because it's how they get paid. Mm -hmm. And so far this year, I checked a little while ago before we recorded this, and so far there's been three deaths this year. And there might be fewer deaths this year if there's fewer climbers this year. Mm -hmm. We'll just have to see how it turns out because it's still underway. Either way, there's still a spreading opinion that many people climb Everest to, quote, bag it and brag it. Because Mm -hmm. with all the people and trash and confusion and chaos that sometimes happens, reaching the summit has become less of a feat in mountaineering and pushing limits of human body. Then now it's pretty much kind of another Instagram moment. Ugh, I hate that. I hate that. We're slowly making things not matter. How do you fix the problem? I mean, I think we have a great idea how to fix the problem, to be honest. I think we do, too. <laughs> I don't like their whole, like, don't just don't take pictures of anybody else. Like, that doesn't <laughs> fix the problem. You're just hiding the problem. Well, I give you permission to take pictures of me on Everest. Okay. Take all you. the pictures you want. If anybody thank ever you. sees me on Mount Everest. You could take the pictures and then just photo people, Photoshop people out and be like, there's no one in my picture. And some places, I mean, you have to like have a picture of yourself to turn into the Department of Tourism to get your climbing, your like your summit certificate. Mm-hmm. So if you want the certificate to prove that you made the summit, I mean, some people do get it. Some people don't. But I would want my summit certificate. Heck yes. Which if you think about it is like a college degree. If you pay $60,000, it's probably cheaper it's than a college like I was degree. I going to say it is probably cheaper than college. <laughs> You pay $60,000 and you reach the summit. Hell yeah, I want my certificate. It's cheaper than like a semester of college. Probably. Well, I can't say I want to climb Mount Everest anytime soon. I would still like to visit base camp though. I'd visit, sure. That would be I fine. I think it'd be cool. But I don't want to try and hike. If I were in shape to climb Mount Everest and if I had <laughs> the money to spend, if I was willing to spend the money to right. climb Mount Everest, I would do it, but under certain conditions that I know would never be met. It's got to be like me and 20 other people and that's it. If you went, I would, I would go. If you went, I would be like, okay, fine. I guess I'll go. <laughs> we just decided we're never going to climb a mountain together. And then now and we're, we're like, Everest. okay, we're going to climb Everest. We are Joey and Chandler. <laughs> who's the chicken? Who's the duck? <laughs> we'll flip a coin. <laughs> okay. Well, 
I did not know all of that about Everest. I didn't realize it was like so many problems. I knew about the trash problem, which mm-hmm. is basically like people are not bringing down their trash and it's it's really dirty. And I mean, people had to go to the bathroom somewhere too. So it's not like, oh, I didn't even think about that. And it's cold. And you got to like, you're up to the summit. You got to drop trowel. Like, oh my gosh, no. Is, is it going to freeze like right after like, you got to bury? <laughs> you got to look, dig a hole and bury it in the snow. <laughs> That's gross. I think I think I'll stay off the mountain. <laughs> I think I will too for now. I would like to see it like from a distance. I would love to see it. Yeah. But, oh, heck yes. I just don't really feel the need to climb it. I mean, I love to go on hikes. But I like to actually enjoy my hikes and not think I'm I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, I'm going <laughs> to die. I would enjoy climbing and mountaineering and stuff like that, but maybe something a little less I'm going to kill you. Where there's not like a literal zone where if you don't get out of it fast enough, you're dead. There's a reason they call it the death zone. The death zone. I, that's okay. I Like I'll go up to the death zone and be like, woo, woo. And then come back down. It's like (laughs) hit the 8,000 meter point. And then it's like, I'm not going up there. I'm not going. (laughs) This is good. It was a good story. Thank you. I wouldn't really have thought that much about Everest. Like. I wouldn't have thought theft would be such an issue. No. I mean, humans suck, so it doesn't surprise me. And then people cutting corners, like refilling the oxygen bottles and lying about certifications and whatnot just to get people to pay them and just to make money. Well, I think some people just don't care. They don't. It's It's just money for them. Yeah. Greed has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, I don't blame people for wanting to go to the summit if you pay that much for it Mm -hmm. and a lot of people do train for it and work hard for it and like you get a one-shot chance this isn't something that you can just go try again the next week right if it fails and some people it's a dream you know a lot of people that are disabled climb up one guy was a double amputee and he climbed everest wow people are impressive and and what they do oh yeah for sure respect like yeah (laughs) the people who do it the right way who don't take advantage of other people. Like, yes, all the respect in the world. I couldn't do it. Yeah, I don't know. I could do it, but only if there wasn't a lot of people around me. Which isn't going to happen. I know, it's <laughs> not going to happen. So that's why I wouldn't. It's like, Don't you want a lot of people around you, though? Just in case? <sighs> do I get to pick the people? No. Didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people with me. Well, that's all I have. Good story. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. I have no idea what my next story is going to be, so stay tuned. <laughs> I'll look forward to finding out what it is when you do. <laughs> I will look forward to finding out what it is as well. <laughs> we'll both be surprised. Yes. <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at Darker Side of Life Podcast and on Twitter at DSOL Podcast. And our email is Darker Side of Life Podcast at gmail.com. I have some emails I need to go through and, and get to. I've had a really busy time at work lately, so I've actually been on Instagram. I've been on have Instagram you? and I've been I've been doing okay. Yes, we do have good. a couple of messages, but like posting and we've got a lot of, we got a lot of good comments on the Carol Daniels and the Kanika Jenkins. So, yeah, so I'm doing trying to do better with that. Good. I'll have to go in and look at all of those. Yes, we got some some very good comments on that on those stories. So if you guys have any story ideas or want to tell us of your own experiences, just hit us up and we will see you in two weeks. Two weeks. Bye.
Bye. Bye. freeze my little tushy. <laughs>